So we've been reading together the birth narrative of Jesus, and we're reading the book of Luke. And one of the things we're asking as we read the book of Luke is the Jesus that I have in the picture in my head, is that the real Jesus? Is that the Jesus of the New Testament? And so uh, as we were reading the birth narrative last week, we read about him being born in Bethlehem and what the first Christmas probably really looked like. And we read about God becoming a man in, in humble circumstances. And we'll talk more about this next week. But when I say that God became a man, what I mean by that is he actually became one of us. He lived a human life and he was born into a first century Jewish family. And part of that was doing all the things that first century Jewish people, uh, members of the covenant of God in this religion, the things that these people did. And Jesus did those things even as a baby. And so we're going to start today and we're going to read 22 uh, through 38 Um, And we're going to start today uh, here just in verse 21. It says this, At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, uh, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So we've we've talked about the name Jesus uh, and how it means God saves or whatever, but uh, we'll talk now about the circumcision, right? So the law was to circumcise all males on the eighth day, and it was a sign of the covenant of the people of God. But why was the question then as you read that is, well, why did Jesus have to be a part of the covenant if he was perfectly sinless? Why did a sinless Jesus participate as a member of the covenant and do the all the things that these sinful people had to do to be redeemed? Um, one of my favorite commentators, his name is William Hendrickson. Uh, he wrote uh, a commentary. He wrote a bunch of commentaries, but one on the book of Luke. And in that commentary, he says this. I want to read this to you word for word. Uh, it says, he says, the task of Jesus as the last Adam was to keep the law, which the first Adam had failed to keep. He came into the world to bear the law's curse, thus delivering his people from it. So as we read the book of Luke, what we're going to see is that Jesus lived his life as the perfect Israelite. He perfectly fulfilled the law in ways that nobody else could. Part of that perfectly fulfilling the law was the circumcision bit, and it was all this other stuff that he did to fulfill that law, even as a baby. So let's read more. So the circumcision was eight days later, and then we jump forward um, 40 days, and it says this, uh, When the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So in the Old Testament, there was a system of of clean and unclean or pure and impure. And uh, it was all about taking the holiness of God seriously. And there were things that were linked to death, right? So and sin. So you've got blood and uh, dead bodies and some of this stuff. And so to be as you came in contact with some of this stuff, it put you in a state of uh, unclean or clean or whatever, you know, so it would make you unclean. And so they had this whole system set up where you would move from a state of unclean to a state of clean so that you could participate in the things, the worship stuff at the tabernacle or here later on at the temple. And so they had this whole system and there were all these laws. And one of those laws was about giving birth. And if you gave birth for a certain amount of days, for 40 days, that would make you unclean. And so 40 days after After Jesus's birth, um, Mary would uh, come to the temple to be go through this ritual 
uh, to be put in a state of cleanliness so that she could participate in the worship and all this stuff. And so she would go through this whole ceremony. Part of that ceremony also was presenting Jesus to the Lord. So um, the Old Testament law also uh, stipulated that every firstborn male, and what it actually says is every firstborn male, whether human or animal, was to be dedicated to the Lord, right? And so um, it was a lot like how we do baby dedications in church. They would bring the kid and they would say, we, we dedicate this kid to the Lord and we promise that we are going to raise this kid in the faith. And so they do that here. They bring Jesus for that dedication. Um, verse, let's see, 24, um, and it continues, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So part of this whole proceeding for Mary and this family uh, was to offer a sacrifice. Now, all of this comes from Leviticus chapter 12. If you want to go read that later on, uh, bookmark that and go back and read that. That's where all of this stuff comes from. Now, in that section, there's this whole bit about sacrifices. And what it says there is if you can't afford a lamb, right, you're supposed to sacrifice a lamb. But if you can't afford a lamb, then you can sacrifice a dove. And if you can't afford a dove, then you can sacrifice pigeons. And so what we learn here is something very interesting about this family is that they were at the bottom of society. They were very poor. Here we see them sacrificing uh, the sacrifice that was only allowed for the poorest of the poor in society. And just a quick side note. Um, we didn't read the story of the wise men in Luke, and we talked about that last week. That story is in Matthew. And when I talked about that, one of the things I said was, we don't think, uh, scholars don't think the wise men showed up the first night in Bethlehem, like you see in all of the Christmas cards. Um, they probably showed up sometime later. And there's two reasons that we think that. One is that when Herod went to kill all the babies, he killed them all up to a certain age. And Jesus probably, that meant, would have been anywhere in that age range. Um, the second reason is because here we are 40 days later, and Mary and Joseph are still broke. And the wise men, what they did was they brought some very expensive gifts. And if Mary and Joseph had had that money, you know, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and all that stuff, if, he, if they had that stuff, they would have easily been able to afford a lamb for this temple sacrifice. So at least 40 days later, we're pretty sure, okay, the wise men have still not showed up uh, with Mary and Joseph. So Let's set the stage then. Mary and Joseph are at the temple. And the way the temple worked was it was this big elaborate system. And uh, they were at what we call the uh, Temple of Herod because Herod the Great remodeled uh, the, the second temple that was built after the exile. And it was this huge complex. And you got to remember that um, every, everything in this world was a lot smaller than the things in our world. So like uh, before all of this quarantine stuff happened... Um, you know, my office was at a WeWork and it was downtown and I would go downtown every day and I would walk and I'd get lunch or something. I'd be walking around downtown to meet somebody uh, to chat or whatever. And when I'm walking around downtown, you can always tell who the tourists are because while they're walking around, they're looking up, right? Everybody else is looking at their phones and we're scrambling through the crowd and we're jaywalking and getting honked at by cabs or whatever. Uh, but tourists are always walking slow and they're always looking up, and you especially know it's a tourist if they look up and they take a picture of something, right? That always means it's a tourist. Somebody from Idaho or somewhere where the tallest building is like three stories tall. I'm just kidding about Idaho. It's actually my favorite state for motorcycling, you know? Oh, it's gorgeous. Anyway, but from one of these kind of states where they don't have these kind of humongous downtown San Francisco buildings, and when they're walking around, they're just completely blown away. Well, for this this family that lived 
uh, in the country and probably spent most of their time in the country, the only time they saw something this majestic was when they went to the temple. And they would go from a small town, just like to downtown, to this huge bustling city. And there were there were temple money changers and there were people selling lambs and there were priests up at the altar doing the sacrifices and there were places for people to give alms and pray and sing and worship. Um, it was just an absolute uh, madhouse when they would go to the temple. It was awe-inspiring. That was the whole idea. And so sometime during the day that they spent at the temple, a man approached them. A man walked up to Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus uh, in Mary's arms. And this is what it says in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So Simeon now is introduced. And he's introduced as uh, righteous and devout. But in what sense? Now, remember, this is almost word for word how Zechariah and Elizabeth were uh, described in the beginning of the book in one six in chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, they're described as righteous also. Now, what I said back then is the same thing I'll say now. This doesn't mean that they were perfectly sinless or perfectly righteous. They're not using the righteousness in Luke is not using the word righteousness in Paul's theological sense. Uh, he's using the word to, to say that they, they were covenant members, they were part of the covenant of God, and they were trusting God, and they were, um, they, they were trusting God for their salvation. And so Simeon especially, it says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Uh, the New Living Translation says he was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. And I like that. That's a really good way to put this. Remember, we talked about this a lot when we read the Song of Zechariah. Uh, the level of anticipation of the coming Messiah. Simeon was one of these people that had that anticipation. He was waiting and waiting and waiting, and he just could not wait for the Messiah to show up and to rescue again the people of Israel. And we know also it says here that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, this is the Holy Spirit is and being upon people like this is going to be a huge theme in the book of Luke and also then in the sequel to Luke, the book of Acts. Um, we've already seen in this book, John the Baptist as a baby was said to be, or in the womb was said to be full of the Holy Spirit. Mary was uh, said to have the Spirit. Uh, Jesus already, Elizabeth, and Zachariah. So basically all of the major characters in our book so far uh, have um, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in their life. And we're going to talk especially next week about the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. But here we see the Spirit is indwelling this man, uh, Simeon. And that's how, look at verse 26. That With that, 26 makes a lot more sense. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he would see the Lord Jesus, right? Uh, he would see the Lord's Christ before his death. Now, not a lot of details are given about this man's life, but this is one. At some point, God revealed to him that, look, dude, you're not going to die until in some form and in the flesh you have seen the Messiah, right? The Holy Spirit revealed to the, uh, revealed this to him. Now, that's pretty cool. Uh, this guy knows that this thing that everybody's been waiting for now for a thousand years or two thousand, you know, even longer, actually, since Abraham, you know, or back, you can go even trace it all the way back to Eve. People have been waiting for this Messiah to show up. And this guy, Simeon, knows I am going to see this person in my lifetime. So verse 27, 
Uh, he continues. Luke continues. It says, uh, And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child to Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God, and he said, and then we'll read what he says in a second. So, again, this is the third mention now that he is in the spirit. The spirit is guiding this man's life. I think that's so cool. And in the spirit, he comes up to this family, and he sees Jesus. He sees Mary, and he sees Joseph. Now think about this. Mary and Joseph were obviously poor peasants. Um, if you can imagine if they only could afford uh, pigeons, you know, for their, um, for their sacrifice, uh, that they probably weren't dressed very well. Um, they didn't have a lot of money. They weren't with a lot of people. And, uh, you know, they were poor. And without hesitation, Simeon went up to them and he says to them, this kid is the Messiah. That's so cool. He isn't worried about him being a prince. He isn't worried about him being rich or powerful or anything like that. He knows that God can overcome any of these circumstances. And he was so sure that seeing this poor peasant family with this unmarried couple and their illegitimate son, that what he does is he walks up to them and then he he grabs the kid, he holds the kid, and then he bursts into song. Now, this song, again, has a Latin name. It's called the Nunc Dementis. The name, again, like the other ones, like the Benedictus and uh, the Magnificat, is taken from the first lines in the song where it says, now dismiss. So that's it in Latin. And uh, this, it's the last of four songs, right, that we have in the birth narrative that uh, the way Luke lays this out is really wonderful. He puts these four songs in here. So we had the Benedictus of Zechariah. We had the Magnificat of Mary. We had the song of the angels singing with the shepherds or to the shepherds or whatever. And now we have the song of Simeon, the Nunc Dementis. So I have no idea actually how to say that. Nunc Dementis. I'm going to be honest, never took Latin and don't care to. Uh, So I'm going to read the whole song and then we'll walk through it bit by bit. So 29, it says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That's the song. So let's look at this first verse, 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. So the very beginning of this um, in English is the word Lord. It's not the first word in Greek, but in English... Um, it's the word Lord. Now, the main word, if you if you know any Greek, the main word that you uh, would say for the word, that we would translate the word Lord in Greek is this word kyrios. And it's almost always the word used when in English you read the word Lord. But not here, not in Simeon's song. Here he uses the Greek word despotius, uh, which is where we get our English word despot. Um, and what that means is like an absolute ruler. Now, in English... We always use this word in a negative sense. But here, Simeon uses this word to describe God in a positive way. And what he's saying is not just Lord, like, oh, you're kind of in charge, right? He's saying, like, Lord, you are uh, the despot. You are in absolute control. And he's not just talking about of a kingdom or whatever. He's talking about of the the entire world, the entire universe. And so with that control, Lord, you have... You have that kind of control. Look at what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Imagine being so trusting in God's plan that when it's time for you to die, you are all kinds of excited. It's like Paul in the book of Philippians, where he says, man, look, 
I'm paraphrasing. This is the new John version. He says, man, I would so much rather be dead uh, than to be here on earth. Because if I'm dead, Paul says, I get to be with Jesus. But if I have to stick around for a little while longer so that I can help you guys, uh, fine with me, right? Because that's God's plan for me. Now, Simeon had that same attitude. Now that he has seen this baby, he's ready to go, right? Because he's seen Jesus, he is now officially like ready to go. Look at verse 30. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Remember I said this before, that growing up in church, I sort of got the picture that nobody in the first century world that Jesus was a part of really understood it. Nobody really got it. Everyone in Jesus's time was misguided, but that's not really the picture that Luke paints. Um, There are all of these different people in the book of Luke who are actually nobodies in the eyes of the world, but who totally get it. Simeon is one of these people. In the eyes of the world, he's just some old guy who's wandering around the temple. But Luke portrays him as somebody who really gets what God is doing. This, he knows what God's Messiah is really all about. It's about salvation, but not just for the people of Israel. Right. This is the part that he gets. Look at verse 31 uh, and 32. He says, uh, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That's verse 30. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So we saw this in we saw the same theme in Mary's song. We saw the same thing in Zachariah's song. We talked about this with the angels. God's plan for salvation is bigger than just one people group. God's plan for salvation involves bringing all tribes and nations together under the umbrella of the kingdom of God. There was never an intention that only these Israelite covenant members of the family of God would be saved. The plan was always for them to take the good news to the nations and for God to bring together this weird mishmash of everybody, all different kinds of people. And that word um, is especially um, important for us to hear today with the tension in our country. And we were talking about this in the Zoom call um, last Wednesday. It's why we're reading Tim Keller's book, uh, Generous Justice. But remember, who is Luke writing this book to? Uh, The guy's name was Theophilus, and Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus. And so this guy was probably not Jewish. He was probably a Roman. Uh, That's a Roman name, or maybe he was Greek, but he was probably a Roman official. And as a Roman official, he would have maybe read the book of Matthew or, you know, and just kind of wondered, well, is this really for me? Not that Matthew says, don't read too much into that. But, you know, he, he was wondering, is this for me? And then Luke writes this book. And so far, we're not even two chapters into this book, and we already have numerous spots where Luke seems to be specifically saying to Theophilus, God's plan all along, all along was that people like you would come into the family of God. Outsiders would be brought in and that the family of God would be a place where people of all races are united together, like I said, under the umbrella of the kingdom of God. And so Simeon is one of the first century Jewish people who really seems to understand the heart of God. Because three times it's mentioned, he is full of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is on this guy's life. And so as he's sharing these things, verse 33, Jesus's father and mother, right? It says, and his father and mother, so Mary and Joseph, they marveled at what was said about him. So remember that Mary and Joseph, they're standing in the courtyard and they're thinking, okay, this miracle baby and these shepherds showed up and all this stuff's amazing. And 
They don't really know, though, the whole plan. And as they're standing in the courtyard or they're walking, this guy comes up to them as if they needed more reassurance. And he comes up and he grabs them and he says, your kid is the Messiah. Your kid is the one who's going to bring salvation to the entire world. And that's such a wonderful thing. And he busts out into this wonderful song. And so Mary and Joseph, we, we know, probably, it looks like they didn't have the whole plan. God didn't tell them about the death and the resurrection and all this stuff. They didn't know the entire plan for the life of this baby. They're sort of taking it as they go along, and they're trusting God as they go along. And so this meeting with Simeon seems to be another step where God is strengthening their faith. And step by step, where we learn that, the, that Mary treasures these things in her heart, or that the, they marvel at this sort of stuff that God is doing. They are taking this stuff in, and they're learning about God's plan for salvation through their son, Jesus. And then Simeon, um, so while they're standing there marveling, verse 34, he gives them specifically to this end of helping them grow in faith, I think. He gives them this prophecy. It says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, uh, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. So Simeon now delivers this prophecy. And what he says first is that this, this child has been appointed. The Greek word there for appointed Everywhere else in the New Testament, it means like to put something down. Like you're holding, you know, I'm holding my cup. Actually, I'll take a sip of water. I'm holding my cup and I set it down. I appointed that the cup should go right there, right? I, I, I set it down where it goes. That's the word that's used here. And so what Simeon literally says is somebody put this kid here for a reason, right? And the assumption is obvious is that it's the despot God who is in control, right? That is the God who set Jesus where he is. And so he's been appointed. He's been set for what? For the fall and rise of many in Israel. Now, this is a reference to Isaiah 8. I want to read you these two verses from Isaiah 8. It says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They uh, shall be snared and taken. So Simeon seems to be alluding to this verse without directly quoting it. And the idea is this, that Jesus, this Messiah, is going to be like a stone. And some people are going to trip and fall over this stone. And others, for other people, he will be the chief cornerstone in their lives that they build their entire lives upon. So He's saying for some, this is going to be great, and for others, not so great. And that's why he says that he'll be a sign opposed. Um, I want to read to you here from uh, this whole verse. I want to read to you from the New Living Translation, which is like basically a more paraphrased translation of the Bible, where uh, it says this in verse 34, Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, and many others to rise. He has been sent uh, as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. So like I said, one of the reasons that we're reading together the book of Luke is to try to get an accurate picture of who Jesus has revealed himself to be. And one of the and we want to test that against who we think he is. And we want to ask ourselves, is this Jesus the real Jesus? 
And one of the false pictures that we have of Jesus in our society is that he was some sort of a peaceful hippie that never bothered anybody, um, that he was just sort of like a passive wimp that nobody really cared about. Um, Well, that's not the picture that Luke paints. Here, even as a baby, we see something else. Simeon is saying that some people will follow him, but a lot of people are going to trip over him. And a lot of people are not going to be able to handle what he's all about and the things that he teaches and the way he lives his life. A lot of people are going to oppose him. And we're going to see that right from the get-go of Jesus's ministry when he's rejected in Nazareth. And we'll read some of this stuff. Here, Simeon doesn't say why this is going to happen. We're going to actually leave that. Why did so many people oppose Jesus to the rest of the book of Luke? But from the time that he's like just over a month old, Luke is setting the tone that this Messiah is going to be controversial and he's really going to upset the apple cart. And in the end, all of that is going to lead to something that's very troubling for Mary. It says in verse 35, um, Simeon continues and he speaks specifically to Mary. And he says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So this sword that will pierce Mary's soul, most theologians believe that this is a reference to the Messiah. Remember, think about Mary, who had this child in this miraculous fashion and raised him and he was such a good kid and, um, you know, all this. And like, he, he really grows up and she loves this child and Then he goes off and he does his ministry and then they capture him and they crucify him. And Mary was there at the cross and she watched them lay Jesus down on the ground and drive spikes through his wrists into the wood as he screamed in pain and probably through through the side of his feet into the cross and they lifted him up and he was was having trouble breathing and she watched him just covered in blood and all gory and everything. You can imagine as a parent, especially as a mother, what that would have done to her heart. And so uh, Luke, he, I mean, sorry, Simeon doesn't mention the resurrection here, but what he's saying is this, this child is going to be, uh, is going to divide Israel. And as that happens, it's going to be very hard for you, Mary. And so that's Simeon. So Simeon, he's giving this prophecy and all of this stuff. And it looks like there was another person who was standing off to the side uh, and she was watching all of this. So look at verse uh, 36 and 37. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel uh, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was, sorry, until she was 84. So what we uh, know about her is basically not a lot that she's from this tribe and she was very old. Now the Greek here is fuzzy. It could mean that she was 84 years old, or it could mean that she lived for 84 years after already being married for seven. So that would put her well over 100 years old total. Um, Since people didn't live that long back then, uh, most scholars believe the first option, the translate, that's the translation that the ESV takes here. But I mean, basically, I guess, is she in her 80s or her hundreds? It doesn't really matter for our text. What we do know is, though, that she was a prophetess. Um, Remember what a prophet is. A prophet is the the mouthpiece of God. And in the Old Testament especially, there were um, a lot of prophets who were never named, right? There was even a school of prophets, and we learned to had a ton of students um, that we don't know who they are. So there were a lot of these smaller no-name prophets, and there were even several women prophets, right? We have Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, Isaiah's wife is called a prophet. There's a false prophet in Nehemiah uh, chapter 6. In the New Testament, we're told that the daughters of Philip are prophets, 
Anna is one of these great prophets. And what's her role here? Look what she says. So she comes up uh, and she's probably eavesdropping on Simeon and uh, Mary and Joseph. And then the rest of verse 37, it says, She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer uh, night and day. So this is probably hyperbole, right? Exaggeration for effect. Like if I was going to describe somebody who was who was really excited about God, I would say this guy, he never stops reading his Bible. Now, does that mean that he never stops? No, you know what I mean? I think that's what's going on here. So when Luke says she was always in the temple, I think what he means is like, dude, she was like always in the temple and she was there and she was fasting, which is giving up um, usually food or, you know, you can fast with other things, but it's giving up food so that when you get hungry, you have, it reminds you, why am I doing this? Oh yes. And you think about God. And at the same time, while she's fasting, she's praying and she's pouring out her heart to the Lord. And so you can see that, again, the picture is painted that just like Simeon, she was a righteous woman. She was a godly, sorry, um, she was a godly woman, extremely godly woman. In verse 38, so she speaks and she gives thanks. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So she probably knew Simeon. I don't know. Maybe not. It doesn't really say. Uh, But if they're both hanging out at the temple all the time, they might have bumped into each other. And she was probably standing there and heard Simeon's entire song. And so she goes over, and I'm guessing that she also picked up the baby. This is pre-COVID-19 when you were allowed to pick up other people's babies. And she picks up the baby Jesus, and she thanks God, and she pours out her heart in worship. And then it says in verse 38... I love this. And she, uh, let's see, she began to give thanks to God and then to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Um, So again, like the consolation of Israel, we're talking here about the redemption of Jerusalem, which is just another way to say that God is going to bring salvation to the world through the people of Israel. And so these people were waiting for this Messiah and on and on uh, and on. They were waiting and waiting and waiting and kept not showing up, not showing up. And then all of a sudden, here he is. This, this In the temple, the Messiah is here in the person of a month old baby. And for Anna and for Simeon, that was all that they needed to see. And so that's our passage. That's where we're going to stop. Um, I want to tell you about a Friends episode. I, I don't know if you guys watch Friends. It's It's no Seinfeld, that's for sure. First off, I'll say that. Uh, Melissa likes Friends more. I like Seinfeld more tells you everything you should know about us. Just kidding. Um, anyway, there's this Friends episode. It's called The One with All the Kissing. And in it, it's one of the earlier episodes when Friends was actually still kind of funny. And in the episode, wait, let me take a sip of water, sorry. Rachel, it's right after they get back from London and Rachel goes to tell Ross she still loves him and break up the wedding. And, you know, if you know the show, you know the storyline. Anyway, they get back and Rachel decides that she's terrible at making life decisions. And so, she gives all of the decision, decision-making decision power in her life to Monica. And so anything that Monica says, uh, Rachel has to do. And so I remember thinking the first time I saw this episode, or way back when, one time when I saw this episode, you know, that's absolutely insane. Who would ever give somebody else that kind of control in their life? Right? The Western individualistic streak in me came out. And it does in the episode, too. The same thing happens in the episode very quickly. Rachel disagrees with Monica about a decision that she's made, and so she fires her from her new job of controlling her life. 
So the arrangement does not last very long because let's be honest, nobody wants somebody else to tell them what to do all the time to have that kind of control. And this is how our natural inclination works. This is the natural inclination of the human heart. We are centered on ourselves. And so think about how you are angered for somebody else infringing on the control of your own life, right? Think about this. What are some of the things you say? Well, he cut me off. You know, basically what you're saying is, well, now I'm not in control. That's me. That's mine right there. Um, I know a person who's been fired from just about every job she's ever had because every boss that she ever had uh, was out to get her. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, the problem might not be every boss that you've ever had. There's a pattern here. That selfishness bubbles up and she doesn't like people to tell her what to do. Or it's nobody any of you know, so stop trying to figure it out. Um, How often... Or think about this, like how often do we see a kid yell at somebody, you can't tell me what to do, you're not the boss of me, right? And as a society, we don't even like morality anymore. As a society, we are moving away from a firm set of moral codes to a sort of blob of morality that really depends on each and every person. Nobody can tell me what is right or wrong. Um, You know, thanks, uh, was it named uh, John Paul Sartre? Um, Anyway, we have to be the Lord of our own lives. And I talk about this a lot, but that's really what the first sin was. It was replacing our selves as Lord for God as Lord. That's what Eve was doing. She was saying, I want to be like God. I want to be the God of my own life. And so here in this story, we have two amazing people. We have Simeon and we have Anna. And remember, about examples in the Bible. As you read the stories of the Bible, some of the examples are meant to be followed, and a lot of them are not meant to be followed. And a lot of times I think we get confused when we think, well, should I follow these examples and threaten to cut babies in half and do some of this other stuff that I read in the Bible? No. Most of the time the answer is no, that you should not follow these examples. Here, these two people are examples that are meant to be followed. These people are in the Bible because Luke wants us to emulate them. Right? We have this, these two amazing examples of the lives of people who, who we should strive to be like. And let me show you why it was so amazing. R.C. Sproul, the late great R.C., he really put this so well. Um, and let me just read to you what he wrote in his section on this, um, uh, on this passage. He says, look, do you see what's behind this song? He's talking here about Simeon specifically. Do you see what's behind this song? Oh, Lord. I don't have to watch this child grow up. I don't have to watch him talk with the doctors in the temple as a lad of 12 years old. That's what we'll read next time. I don't have to watch him multiply the fishes and the loaves to feed 5,000 people to be convinced. I don't have to watch him walk on water, turn water into wine. I don't have to be on the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't have to be an eyewitness of the resurrection or of his ascension into heaven. I have seen all that I need to see. Now let me die in peace. One glimpse of the Christ child and Simeon was ready to go home to God. How does that work, right? In verse 29, he calls God the ultimate Lord, the Lord of everything, the absolute Lord in every sense of the way. Imagine the kind of faith that says, you are so in control and so good that I only have to see a fragment of the whole picture of what you're doing. Um, I completely trust you with my life. And I completely trust you with the whole universe, with everything, because you're in control. That is such a godly example to follow. But I think this would be a terrible sermon if that's where the sermon ended. If I just said, now go be like Simeon. Because how do we get from point A to point B? How do we get from, I have to be the Lord of my life at any cost, 
to I will serve and trust the Lord at any cost, no matter what. I have to know every detail or I'm not going to trust God at all to all I need is a fragment of the story. And I trust God so much that that's fine with me. In our fallen state, we do not have the desire to give up the reins in our lives. But as we put our faith in Jesus, and as we are redeemed, we are not just saved from the effects of sin, or from the consequences of sin, right? But we are transformed by the Holy Spirit. We are freed from the bond of sin, right? Sin had this hold on us that Jesus, through the cross, he breaks that hold. And so a lot of people hear the word freedom, and they read the word freedom in the Bible, and they think that freedom is sort of this uh, this freedom to just do whatever I want. That's what real freedom is. The problem with that is nobody is ever truly that free. Everybody is a slave. Some people are slaves to sin. And so people who think, well, I'm, I want to be free, what they mean is I want to be free to continue to be a slave to sin. And when the Christian talks about Christian freedom— What we mean by that is we have a freedom to serve a new and a better master, a master who is love, a master who would become a baby and be vulnerable and grow up and live the perfect life and then die for us, right? And so the Lord, through his Holy Spirit, he reworks our hearts and he orients them towards serving him as our new master, as the complete and absolute Lord, the despot Lord who is in control and away from serving ourselves and from serving our sinful inclinations. Simeon never saw the cross. We are given the impression, right, that it doesn't say specifically. It says Anna was older. It doesn't say that he was older, but you get the impression from, okay, I'm ready to die. You know, 18-year-olds don't say that, right, but 80-year-olds sometimes do. So we get the impression that he was an older guy. Um, Odds are, by the time of the cross and the resurrection, both of these two were long dead. They never saw the death of Jesus. They never saw the resurrection. They never saw redemption happen. All they saw was the baby. And as they saw the baby, they put their trust in that newborn. And they showed uh, that they trusted God, that they had turned away from the bonds of sin and into the arms of serving a new master. And the amazing part of the story is that their hearts were so free to serve the Lord that they were even willing to serve their new master if that new master was a newborn baby. Simeon didn't need the whole picture to trust God because he knew that no matter what God was up to, that was better than anything he could come up with. And in his own life, he had that attitude. I am no longer a slave to sin. I am still a slave, but to a new master who sets me free to live the kind of life that's going to ultimately make me happy. And that's why the story of Simeon and Anna is uh, such an amazing text. And it's such a cool lesson for us to ponder and to think about. Am I the kind of person like Simeon who has shut off the bonds of sin because of the, the redemption of Jesus and, and faced my life towards serving a new and better master? Amen.